so we went out for dinner Friday night before the class started. And we went to this Mexican place, Rihanna's or something, and Taylor's all wound up, and he's got the waitress in his pocket, so he thinks he does. By the end of the night, he's saying, hey, what's it take to get pie in this kind of place? And she says, take your white ass to Denny's. <laughs> so welcome to the Everyday Sniper. You got Frank from Sniper's Hide here, and I kind of lost my voice a little bit. But we got Ted Hager. He's the one who did the sheets for weaponized math. And Ted has some questions for us. So Mark and I are here. Ted's here. And we're just going to see what Ted has to say. And I'll pass a little bit off to Mark because my voice is going. Um, but there we are. Ted, take well, it. Well, first we need an update on your Sasquatch hunting, how you're doing there. Dude, I'm the most successful Bigfoot hunter in the world. Yeah, no new stories? No, no, like no, no new stories. Uh, you know why? Because I'm in, I'm in Iowa. Bigfoot can't hide in Iowa. Oh, we have a TV show, a two and a half hour TV show about hunting Bigfoot in Iowa. Really? Yes. Really? Yeah, there's a group out of Northwest Iowa that, that go out and make TV shows about hunting them in Iowa. They go, go into timbers in the woods and they call them, they knock and they find them. I got a Bigfoot sticker from a student today. The stickers like to give us Bigfoot stuff, so I appreciate that. But a great class today with you guys. Um, it's a two-day class and we cruise through it uh, really well. But Ted has questions and I think we might have answers. Okay. Uh, so one of the first things I want to ask you about is some of the, just being in the industry. I mean, everyone that's deep into the gun stuff, long range shooting, they all dream about having that gun in the gun or job in the gun industry where you guys are at. So what's, what's your favorite part about being in the gun industry? Is it seeing the, the, the secret stuff, the backside of things? Is it being in the front cutting edge? You know, what about the industry itself? The people. What we're not even attempting to create, but happenstance creating or, or guys um, who play together well, and and the people that we've created in Alaska and well, now that's, outside of Alaska, that's the students. He's, I mean, yeah, that's what I mean. The shooters. Yeah, but know? no, I, I like the secret squirrel stuff. Yeah. I like seeing the things. I like when guys call you up and say, um, you know, hey, we're coming out with a new thing. We got a widget. We need you to look at it. And I like that part of the inside an industry. I get what Mark's saying as instructors. The students are, are, the, are the most important part because they make the class. But for the gun industry side of things, I mean, the gun industry to me is backbiting in a lot of ways like anything would be. Um, you're, 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 you're hot one day, you're not the next. Um, it, all it takes is somebody to say, you know, I top 10 a PRS event and they want your chip, you know, because there's it, the gun industry is like a bag of potato chips. There's only so many chips in the bag and everybody wants their hand in. So you're always dealing with that. But for me, I'm a super fan. I love this kind of stuff. I love seeing all the new little widgets that come out. And, and, and I like calling balls and strikes on things. I like predicting, is it going to work? Is it not? And, you know, I like signing the NDAs for stuff and, and saying, you know, ah, that reticle's good, that's not, change that, do that. I mean, if you think about it, I had a hand in like the RPR, a bunch of reticles, different things, and and so I mean I've I've probably had two dozen NDAs over the years um, with various products, and so I like that sort of upfront heads up. But as far as what we're doing today, yeah, what Mark said definitely it's the students that make this side of the class or this side of the industry that we're we're focusing on the the best thing out there. But I like the widgets, man, because I'm a fan. Okay. What's it like being in a big room with all the big brains? You're there with tubs and you're there with... Um, you know, the, different the people are different things because some big brains are so smart, they're stupid. And we're more common sense kind of guys. <sighs> but like to me, you know, if I'm in a room with a David Tubb, I, who I think is 10 years ahead of everybody else, I'm, I'm sitting back and I'm listening. And then I'm just, I'm waiting for his predictions to come true. You know, but there's times I've been in rooms with big brains and it's like, Dude, nobody's going to do that. Nobody's, you know, and it's like, that is so complicated. Forget it. Because, um, you know, like I said, my dad had a saying, you're so smart, you're stupid. And I think we're a little bit more practical and common sense kind of guys because we're just high school guys, you know. Okay. So. Um, so being in the industry, and you guys have been doing this since the 80s. I mean, we did the same thing in the 80s and the same thing in the 90s, and then things started to change. So what's the biggest change in the industry you saw in the 2000s and the 2010s? The equipment. Yeah, gear. Yeah. Man, I mean, 
I got a I got a six year old tripod that was that was leading edge for a year, you know. The, the and and then all of a sudden it's 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 now it's ancient. It's so obsolete. It's it's incredible. But uh, the equipment changes so fast. You know, we had it in this course. We've got it. One of the Gen One razors. Well, seven years ago, the Gen One razor was the, like the. I mean, it was it's the newest, tits. latest, greatest. Yeah, yeah. Tits, I mean, you know, now it looks like a dinosaur. And I'm not taking anything away from it because I own one as well. Uh, it tracks well. It, they shoot well. But but, wow, the the the, it's the it's, it, it's rolling so fast. You know, but now we've taken it backwards with like the weaponized math. You know what I mean? And, and you're a big part of that by making those sheets and and look at the center line hits with a guy. Right. You know. Um. But uh, you know, I got the garment on. Latest and greatest, the whole thing. We got the Kestrels. Um, the equipment is just through the roof. The chassis, you know, we're, and then how the fiberglass stocks have changed. Look at manners and the tuning systems. And, you know, let's drop this down a little bit. Let's do that. But, I mean, the and, equipment is really... And, and is, bullets got better and technology yeah, got better. Yeah, everything did. So, so what kind of changes did you see in the 90s? Was there anything? Slings. Like, okay. you went from a leather sling to a nylon sling, you know? That's pretty simple. <laughs> yeah, that was like it. And, and, and it was, it, okay. really, that was it. From 168s to 175s. Yeah. That was okay. it. Uh, you know, we shot a 173. Then you had the 168. Then the 175. Now we're in the six mils, and you could do all this other stuff. Yeah. Um, what changed is our sand sock wasn't a sock. It's now sewed. You know, that kind of stuff. All we changed was a little piece of nylon and, you know, a sling. That's it. Okay. Taylor, we, uh, we speaking of, of doing scopes, we saw an impressive one today that we didn't think was going to do well, and it came out really, really Brownells. Well. Yeah. Yeah, Brownells. What was the model? The MPO, Match Precision Optic. Yeah, Brownells MPO for 1000 bucks. We got a gentleman from Brownells here shooting the course, and uh, we're tracking this scope, and I said, wow, this is a nice-looking scope. Look, I said, what kind is it? Uh, who makes it? Brownells. What? Light optical what? or something. Yeah, know? I mean, no, I was impressed. For a thousand bucks, it's right up there with the SHV, you know, and it goes to 18 power, not uh, 14. Yeah, it's a good scope. I have one they sent me. Uh, I've talked about it a little bit, but not enough. I've been remiss in that. Um, but it is a good scope. Uh, it's it's a it's an excellent optic um, for a thousand dollar. And yeah, it's there. We're, Look at the athlete. That is what you were talking about, yeah, right? Yeah, we're, yeah. T- we're testing today, and, and Taylor Taylor gets done testing it, and Frank, this thing dialed 100. percent It was perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, Frank yells back, "I got one," and the guy at the gla- class yells at him, "I'm the one that sent it to you." Yeah. <laughs> there so, you go. That was fun. Getting into class stuff. Um, I was going to ask what's your favorite part about teaching precision rifles, but I'm guessing the people, kind of like you started into. Yeah. Meeting the people, seeing the people. Um, how about seeing gear? I mean, is that something that you guys are always looking for? Looking yeah, the what gear's coming a long way. It's it's uh, what I what, first thing I told Frank today when we got in the car, and as soon as me and Frank get in the car, we always have something to say. And I said, Frank, we're doing something right because between the podcast, videos, the online training, or or whatever, these guys are showing up much more prepared. You yeah. know, I mean, the, uh, at the initial eval today. It looked really squared away, you know. Like we had uh, twelve guys eval, and I think there was, you know, really not a lot of correction there nope. at all. Oh, you know, maybe two triggers that were dug into the joint, maybe a tap here or there. Every only one guy was off, maybe two degrees, um, you know, from being square. Uh, bipods were up, all good. But we had all cows or side pods. I don't on. think anyone was running a, a, a Harris. Nope, today. we had all, first class with no Harris. Right, no Harris at all. First class, all mill. Mm-hmm. All first mil. class, all mill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was really, really good, and and it's kind of like I, I said to him, I'm like, is that good or bad? Are we giving all this stuff away uh, um, to you guys for nothing? But then they're still coming to class to get that hands on and the tweak and that personal experience. So it's it's. Check, um, checking the box and validation. Yeah, man, we're, we're doing it. I mean, the prescriptions, you know, we have 19 things in our checklist that we look at. We might have had two problems per person versus 10. So that's a big difference. And, and we're making marksmen out there, and, and this helps with the podcast, uh, all kinds of stuff. I mean, you can tell my voice is gone. Um, it, it, was, it was classroom day today. It's because you never shut up. I know, man. <laughs> <laughs> So, so speaking of, you know, checking boxes and stuff and, and not having a lot to check off today, 
When you're doing your evals, what are like the top three big mistakes you see that, that new shooters are making? Number one, triggers. Trigger. Yep, trigger control is, is number one. Um, multi-placement on the trigger and then tapping them, not following through. I call follow through the forgotten fundamental. 90% of the people who have trigger control issues don't follow through. Um, then there is the bipod, bipod uh, and rear bag. Rear bag, uh, you know, uh, non-shooting hand control. Our, our biggest fix in the last probably six or this season, I would say, our biggest fix is guys who want to multitask the bag in a precision rifle class. So they have the puff pillows, they have the game changers, and they're trying to use that as a rear bag, and they can't get around it. Or it bounces, and it, and it does all kinds of crazy <coughs> stuff. Um, so, you know, we're kind of harp on the bipod. We're seeing a bipod change. Thunder Beast, Atlas Cal. But then, now we're going back, we have to fix rear bags. Because everybody's going to these compromise bags, and a compromise bag is a compromise. And we get it. If you're going to shoot a match, you have to compromise. But we're not shooting a match. You shouldn't compromise. And the thing is that when I talk to all these students, everybody owns like four bags. But they're bringing that compromise bag. Because so, they, th they think it's a do-all. Yeah, yeah, and it's not. Uh, we see the variations when you're using it. And because we're, 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 we're nailing everybody down that tight that we can see the problems. So Okay. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what's the worst mistake you said? So, so the top three we kind of went through, but what's the worst mistake that as soon as you see someone do it, you're like, there's no way they're going to have good groups? I had, it's been three, four years, Frank and I had a guy with his rounds loaded backwards in the magazine, and then he tried to load the magazine backwards into the rifle. <laughs> And it was, the, the, it was the craziest thing I ever like saw. Couch. Yeah, it was the craziest thing I ever what saw. What about the guy that laid on the rifle like a couch yeah. um, sideways? Um, you know, we've seen a lot, but trigger control, or no, you know what I think the worst mistake we've seen is the hand loads. Remember when I said to the guy, guys who, they buy virgin brass, they don't size it because they think it's new. They just jump powder in it and seat a case and they come to class. And, we, and I really don't necessarily recommend reloads for a class unless you know what you're doing and every bullet was a different height and i said that gun's gonna blow up in 10 rounds and it blew up in eight and broke the bolt um so i think the, the the worst thing that this guy's gonna absolutely have to borrow a rifle is reloads and then you know the um those shorty stocks the stalkers with the ar but and then you know the bipod is a magpul bipod we're going to be pulling that rifle from the guy and giving him a better one. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I would think that would be the two big ones. Okay, top two quality pieces of gear to show up with. Quality. Now, we know the bipod because you've, you've... Harp on it. Yeah, you, you've killed that dead horse a couple times. But Suppressor. <laughs> yeah, suppressors help. Sophistication. Yep. you got to be civilized, man. Have a suppressor. Um, and then scopes. Put your money in a scope, uh, you know, or find one that has a good track record. Like we're looking at, we have what, 105, well now uh, 12 more. So 118 scopes listed in our our uh, records. Our da secret, top secret database. Yep, yep. And, and who's worked more? Like the Athlon. The Athlons have been tracking 100%, man, all the time. Yeah, we had one of those, two of those today, and they tracked right up there. Yep. Um, so I think, you know, if you can't afford it in the rifle, try to put it in the scope would be okay. a piece of advice. Okay. Taylor, anything? Bipod, bipod, good bipod. Okay, um, what's the what's the piece of gear they should they should not show up with? What's the one that if they show up with, they're like, nah, get that out of here, or 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 you really suggest they don't use? Well, for Frank, it'd be a bubble level, but yeah, yeah it's we're making you level. levels, man. But well, no. we, we, I mean, if you if you bring one to class, we're gonna catch it. It's gonna It'd'll spin on you. It'll be wrong. It's idiot light. So, so there's really nothing that when you see it, you're like, don't, we can't have the that. The rear bags, yeah. really, when they, when they have the bigger puff pillows and they're yeah. bouncing on yeah. it. 338 oh. Lapua. Yeah, big cows. We don't really recommend a big cow for a class. Okay. Um, you, there is a lot of guys out there who their first precision rifle they think has to be some cannon, and, okay. and that's not necessary. Okay. Um, if you're in a class and you got a shooter that can't, you're not quite pulling groups together, and you're trying to get them to get smaller groups, better fundamentals, What's your process there? What do you like look we at? Did today. Yeah, what do you look at first and keep moving through the, the fundamentals to make sure you're getting right? 
Well, you talk because you got random trigger control as well. Well, we didn't have any instances of that today. We didn't. We had excellent shooters today, but um, (sighs) usually the it's easy to it's easy to break the fundamentals. Sometimes it's in the second day, end of second day, but I think um, we've never had anybody fail on evaluation. It's not really a pass fail, uh, but by the second evaluation, end of second day or end of third day. It's, it, we got you we got you squared away because like today Frank's on the glass I'm on the shooter all day nobody shoots around that we don't see you know so um, it's easy to fix them that way the the 110% attention is what fixes them and okay. then I like today groups were good and I wanted to make um, as, them as best as I can I lowered everybody's power because um, guys are magnification whores. And boy, and did we saw groups come together. They do, Seriously, the groups. Yeah. Um, and I'm not going to say what power we went on, but I said we, we, we had good group, good group. I said, okay, we're going to go back and shoot one more before we're done. I want everybody to do this. And, the, you know, uh, six out of 12 tightened up. And the, and the four that were already tight stayed tight. Mm-hmm. So um, we lowered max. Um, everybody's a magnification whore. And then I, I recommended when we shot steel, 15, 16, 12, you know. We, you, I get it. You bought 25. Well, we only want to use half of that. And so that was one of them. Let me go back to your last question about what not to bring. Don't bring a rifle for a prone precision rifle course that does not have lift in the butt. The butt well, plays. So many, you know what? You know, that's a big, because it's a fixer, though. I get it. There's yeah. so many chassis out there that don't, but it's an immediate fixer. Uh, of the student when all right if we got a student who has one that will lift but he doesn't have it lifted once he lifts it it, the light comes on right so it's a very important aspect of any chassis or stock i've tried to harp on these stock makers like i need three position stock i need four i need this i need this i want lift in the stock i want can't in the stock you know because that fixes so much and i begged pleaded please Put this in the butt. Make a stock that's designed around marksmanship. We have this model already. The Olympians do it, okay, with their 22s. And and it's just like pulling teeth to get these guys to turn around and build this stuff into their chassis. They'd rather put arca rails and pegs and pins and, you know, widget here up front. Nobody addresses the marksmanship in the back. I, I talk about it in the class. Rifle setup is your car, your seats and your mirrors and your steering wheel, right? We have telescopic wheel. My, you know, we're, everybody's laughing. You know, I got a fancy car. I got 14 positions in my seat. I'm tilted forward. I got the, I got under behind my knees pulled in. You know, I'm, I'm adjusting sights. I'm bringing it. So when I drive my car, I'm in a cockpit. You do the same thing with your precision rifle, and these guys don't do it. You know, and, and it's like pulling teeth to get them to recognize this stuff has a bearing on people's comfort, people's accuracy, and it's it's like why don't they do it? So, okay, so uh, kind of along the same line. The last question is: Have you guys had a student that shot really well on day one and then kind of falls apart in day two? Never no, really, no, not really. So. No, everything not always really. keeps getting better. Not unless the equipment fails. Equipment failure. Yeah. yeah. No, I don't think we've ever. I mean, we do have a tear down okay. because if we're really tweaking you, um. You know, it's one thing, and, and, and you might have a fall off for a group or two, but then usually once it clicks, you go right tighter, better. What we'll usually see is somebody who's used to shooting off a bench or prone only, who shoot really well, slapping and tapping and doing this stuff, but all I have to do is get them out of their comfort zone. If you're a bench shooter, I'll put you on the ground. If you're a ground shooter, I'll put you in alternate positions, and they fall apart on their own. But when we tighten you up, I can move you from anything, and then you're going to work. Okay. Um, so you guys see a lot of shooters and all kinds of levels of shooters. Do you guys have divisions in your brain about what's a beginner, here's an intermediate, and here's a, a really good shooter? And what defines those levels? Yeah, because we're, we're catty. We break down everybody. Right. And, and so we make, we're, putting you, we're putting you guys in buckets. But, but they don't know they're being put in yeah, the Yeah, we don't make it public. Because the, the, the guy who's novice is right next to the guy who's expert, and he never knows that he's getting heavily tweaked because we're going because I'm spending time with everybody, whether you're an expert or not. You're a great shot, Ted, but I spent time in your face today too, you know, because you paid for it. 
and and, and I don't see anything that needs correcting on you, but but you still gotta you gotta get time, man. Well, you know? we tell like I'll tell a guy who's, who's fundamentally sound when he shows up. He may be a comp guy and doing this and doing that, and I'll come over to him at some point and say, "You got to shoot faster now." You know, we're doing this, we're doing that. You need to be on that bolt quicker, and you need to shoot faster. Fundamentals quicker from alternate positions, executing the same way as you did from the prone. And um, so I'll tell a guy, I whisper, you know, I won't whisper it, but I'll go in his ear and say, when we do this, I want you following up quicker. I want to make sure you see what's going on, and that next round is coming within that three to five seconds. I don't want you following up in 10 to 15. I want you following up in three to five. So I'll do that. So that's some of the expert or more advanced stuff. Mm-hmm. How about the intermediate, you know? Because I think we can all pick out a beginner, but where do you get from the beginner to the intermediate? What's that the skill that changes? The intermediate usually just needs confidence. Okay. I think an intermediate shooter just needs that confidence because usually intermediate guys have decent gear or maybe their gear is right on the, they're right at the limit of their gear and it's like, you need to upgrade now. You're good enough to go to the next level. New barrel, different scope. You know, something like that, a better bipod. But um, I think the intermediate guy needs confidence. What I noticed today when we took the we took the scopes off the rifles, people were sweating because That's they're used to the mounting off the rifles. Oh, they're used to mounting the scope in the rings, bronzing it so that it, nothing can mm-hmm. move. I mean, you know, and then there were some real sweaters today. A couple guys were just sweating. Man, I'm not used to doing this. This is a but then, you know, we take you over there. We got an assembly line going on. So that re- that flowed really smooth today. We're going to do that every time. Yeah, it was good. It was really uh, good. What we did was uh, I was on the scope tracking section. Then we pushed them over to Frank. Frank mounted them. Zero. Got them mounted them properly. And then they went to uh, right into a zero, and we just did it. It just flowed really easy. We didn't track everybody. Then... Zip, uh, mount everybody. It took longer the last time we did it. Mm-hmm. But, but this we, really went, we went slower last time. We didn't create an assembly line, and today we did. And um, so I brought you over. I mounted it. Like one guy, um, we moved something. You moved the ring on a guy. And so I moved him in the scope. I reset him up, and then I immediately went to a rough zero because we're going to shoot groups at 100, um, get reps in. And so I repositioned his scope so it fit properly. Okay, give me three shots. Settles in the scope. Everything good. I gave him a rough move over. Usually I got him in the 10 ring. Put him in the 10 ring of a shooting C. Give me another group. Settle it in. Okay, go over there. You're good. Make sure everything's locked down. Zero, zero. And then if we had to tweak somebody because we're tweaking them on the line, then we can nudge their zero a tenth or two. But everybody is one at a time on paper. Nobody gets lost. Mm-hmm. you know. And so that worked out really well uh, the way we did it. Okay. Um, so while you're teaching your classes, what's your favorite part of the class to teach? Is it fundamentals, wind, the ballistics, how to berate your neighbor, putting fingers in dogs' butts? What's, uh, which um, section do you guys uh, really enjoy the most? I like the... the like, Fundamental eval is fun. Yeah. First and last, or for, which one? Both. Both. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the last comes at the end of the second day. You know, everybody's tired, basically. But, but uh, most fun is the first one. Um, but I don't have a I don't have a favorite. Well, I, I'll tell you what hit me today was like a jazz moment. Was when Chris was the first shooter and we were doing the first weaponized math uh, from three to four, and he center punched center line, mm-hmm. and everybody saw it. And I looked down the line and heads came up, like holy shit, this stuff works. So to me, that was a jazz moment. Um, that the weaponized math will put a guy on his first shot on the first plate at four hundred. And he's center centered on the line. Yeah, doping yeah. students. Yeah, yeah, I guess mm-hmm. you could say that's that's because that's that's, well, that's it's, light it's rewarding. Is it is what yeah. it is. Yeah, because yeah. this stuff works. What's what's the the part of it that you teach that's the hardest to get students to understand to grasp? What's the most difficult thing that you think take them the longest to pick up? <clears throat> they tell us, but I can't really put my finger on it. Um, I've had somebody say, you know, this clicked on the third day. Probably the trigger control and getting them consistent with that. Once they kind of realize and get that consistency with that 90 degree trigger finger, pad of the finger, um, it, it tends to tends to work pretty well. Uh, but I, yeah, I don't know. Um, I think trigger control and, and, and building that consistency is probably okay. the, the longest of reps, you know. 
Okay. But and that's why we're doing reps as much as we can. And then a wind. Like today we had a follow-up on the wind with Adam. Um, realizing that the wind isn't mysterious. The wind is math. And it's no voodoo. It's, it's understanding the, the cause and effect. Uh, you know, where that falls in. And how to game the wind. So the wind is usually the big mystery for people because people have made it seem like it's magic. Okay. Um, so talking about the trigger control, that kind of leads me into my next part is you guys kind of wanted to know some questions to, to stump you a little bit or give you a different direction. And one of those things I came up with is, is getting off of the square range. Okay. What I want to know is in certain situations, you're going to have to give up or if, if you have to give up something either due to time or some other situation, what do you focus on to make sure your, your shooting is still good shooting? So like an example is if you're off hunting caribou in Alaska, it's really cold, your index finger's freezing, you can barely feel it, now all of a sudden you've lost trigger control. Yeah, my PR2, what, what, what do you do? I have a trade-off in an index section. So you're trading off on what you can't control and you're indexing on what you can. So it's basically taking a table with four legs, cut one leg off, right. slide everything to the other end. Um, if your breathing's compromised, your trigger control better be right. Your natural point of aim better be good. If my trigger control is compromised because the caribou, I better have my natural point of aim and that horse or vertical line better be cutting my kill zone and making sure that's good. Make sure the wind is good. Um, all that stuff because my press might be compromised. Um, again, I'm huffing and puffing. You know, these things better be right when I'm huffing and puffing. So um, I do have a, a, a class um, that talks about trading off what you can't and indexing on what you can. Okay, and one of my biggest questions there is, uh, you, you know, you gotta take a quick hasty shot or, or something like that, and you can't get the right body position. Or more importantly, you're losing the right contact with the rifle to your shoulder. You know, because either your, your rifle has yeah. to be really low to the ground and your, your bag's all the way down and you can't quite get there. <clears throat> what do you do then? What's the fundamentals that, that you're, really you're have to be really good? You're opening up your sight picture. Now, you're right. talking like two different things because your natural point of aim is, say, compromised because right. you're in a tweaked position. Well, I want to open up my sight picture so it becomes more forgiving and I become steadier in my wobble zone because I have less power. Okay. That was, again, what we did with the group shot today. And then the other thing, it's like when I put my rifle on a tripod and I shoot it, not touching it, my trigger control. My trigger okay. control is money. So I'm trying to make that as best I can to least influence a floating rifle. Pull the rifle into your shoulder so you can get a follow-up shot. You know, if you're in an offhand up against a tree, pull the rifle into your shoulder so you can at least see your impact. Uh, whether it be on the ground or on the animal, you can get a quick follow-up shot, shot if you need it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And like I said, and, and I, I, I think that it's it's our point of view in contact is trigger. Trigger, trigger, triggers everything. So if I, if I have any say, that's the one thing I want perfect. And then, again, with that sight picture, I'm going to open it up. I'd rather try to take that really shitty shot on three power or four than try to take a really shitty shot on 15 or 20. So. Okay. I'm getting pictures of pie on my on my uh, thread here. Look at this. Is it from Dennis? Am I lying or not? No, this is a guy in uh, Minnesota, Nick Edlund. Just sent me a picture of an apple pie. Okay. Um, so jump into another section, some of the ballistic program stuff. I have had a couple questions there. And just out of sheer curiosity, from the time you hit the range with your rifle and ammunition, how long does it take you to go from no data to having your ballistic program done? I mean, this, I, like Mark says, we can do it in eight, eight rounds if we really had to. He runs down the range all the time with eight rounds. Eight rounds. Um, when I, when I, well, when I train, when I change lots or you change ammo, you know, when Prime came in, I had to drop Hornady and, and get the Prime uh, zeroed up. And, and, yeah, you can just march down the range with, with eight, nine rounds now, which is pretty special. And then, and then I would just, like I did it in Alaska, I think I shot – Shot less than one box with the AE, um, or not AE, but the AT um, in Alaska. I went to dinner. I put it into um, the computer. And then when we went to Nebraska, I just pulled my computer out, shot everything with the computer, with the Kestrel, and my Kestrel was dead on. So I was able to shoot. Um, I was able to dope my AT in Alaska probably 16 rounds because I'll double up, make sure I'm, I'm good, shoot two. Uh, and then... Um, 
sitting down at dinner, I, I, I have the, I write it on a box. I rip a box open or put on a piece of paper. You know, three is this, four is that, five is this, six that, seven is that, and and go. And then when I go sit down, I go to my Kestrel. I change muzzle velocity, little tweak on the BC. And I'm done. So you're talking all of, you could actually do this in 20 minutes if you had to. Yeah, then that's about what we did when we, we had the day off. Um, and then when we, we took an extra day for Nebraska, we marched out like the students did. We might have shot 40 rounds just because it was a fun range. Um, yeah. Mark usually, like with his hand loads, when he was shooting the 6.5 Creed, you showed up with, what, 40 rounds for three classes? 6.5 by 47. Yeah, by 47. So Mark would show up for three classes to shoot, you know, in between students to demo and to do whatever we're doing um, over the three sets of students, and he brings 40 rounds. So one of the reasons I ask this question is because there's a lot of people, when you talk to them and say, you know, yeah, I shoot long-range precision rifle, we hit targets at 800, 1,000, 1,200 yards, their eyes light up, you know, and, and new shooters, the same thing happens. So trying to reel it back into how simple some of this really is. Now, granted, we've been doing it a while, you know, so the people in the room here understand how it happens, but a lot of people hear the process or see it and be like, that's so complicated. I don't, I don't even know what to do with this. Yeah. But, it, but if you learn the simple steps to it, it goes you're, pretty you're quick. You're two days away from, from realizing or, or, or the light coming on, basically. You know, you're not, you're not going to be an expert after two or three day course, but you're going to have a real good feel for how this is done. It used to be that the only people that shot a thousand yards were competitors and military snipers that's the only people and and um now anybody can do it just uh take a course i, I want students to get reps in so i'm, I'm doing a minimum of three shot group i, I kind of want you i want you on the line above the line below the line on the line and we're trying to get reps in for students but i mean we, we want center of the group to say we're you know we're going to dope to and you know, if you take a piece of steel and put a water line on it, and you hit the water line, you hit the water line, I'm good. Hit the water line, hit the water line, I'm good. Shot above the water line, shot above the water line, click down, hit the water line, I'm good. You know, for me, but for a student who's new, they need reps. And so it's, you know, five shot group on this plate, five shot group on that plate. But if your group is three minutes in size, you're not doing anybody really any favors. You'd have to go there and find the group center and say, here's my group center. Where do you adjust it to, to waterline? But you see how tight the guys are on the waterline here. Yeah. Um, and, and even the, the, the newer shooters or guys with new equipment, waterline, waterline, go to the next one, waterline, waterline. And then we run you down to the small plates. Adam was impressed with himself today. Yeah, yeah. Well, even Chris. Chris was doing a hell of a job. Um, and, and what I'll do is I'll go... Because we got a lot of students, I'll say, okay, you hit the waterline, hit the waterline, hit the waterline, go down to run the rack of small plates. And when the guy hits the three-inch plate, it, you know, that's magic. Because now you know your dope's good. You can hit that little bitty plate. Um, but it, it, it doesn't need, I mean, if, if you're two shots missed, three shots high, two shots over here, and you're, you're all over the place, that's when you need instruction. Okay. So, so after you do, um, you know, doping your rifle out in your ballistic program, how close should you expect that to be? I've always heard you talk, you know, a tenth here or there. Two is tenths, man. If you're two tenths, two tenths is three quarter M away. You know, two tenths here or there is really not that big a deal. And, and um, if you're if you're doping your program and you've got data for further out, do you give up being three tenths off at three and four hundred yards so you can be on data at further out? It's not going to happen. Or, yeah, I mean, so I've I've had a I don't know why, but I've have had guys that the, the the entire curve just doesn't work and it could be bad data weird scope odd yard line something that just didn't quite work and i've recommended to those people make two tracks a short and a long six and in for one track true it up you know seven and out for the other track because in certain settings you may be at half their small targets mm -hmm. but i think if you're within two tenths you're within a one moa plate that's pretty damn good for what we're doing. Um, and, and then, you know, you may find you tighten up or do something. But if I'm if I'm plus or, you know, minus within that or within a tenth either way, I'm a happy camper, man. Okay. And with the programs, 
if you true at 600 and 1,000, like you always talked about, velocity 600, BC at 1,000, mm -hmm. what kind of accuracy do you expect to have at 1,300, 1,400? Are you just still kind of close? Yeah, it depends or? on the program. Some programs are better than others um, with that, and, and I have seen some fall apart okay. uh, at the, the ranges. Um, so, so it's, it's still tri-dope after 1,000? Yeah, 1, it's still kind of tri-dope. I mean, when you're on that backside of the curve, you get a lot more wind variations. You might get something else. You got to look at the person's load, their vertical spread. So a person would have to like basically go out there and put a water line in, you know, big plate, giant, put a line across it at say 1500 meters or um, 1200 meters or yards, whatever you want to use and put a line across and just hold the line and shoot. And don't worry about anything else and see what your vertical spread is because that might be the problem where you're running out of gas and, um, you know, your rounds are not hitting in a, in a, in a one-minute circle anymore. They're hitting in a four-minute circle because of that vertical spread. So I think that's where the considerations have to come in because now you have to do more testing and, and, and looking at that kind of data. Okay. So part of this stuff I'm going through, I kind of titled, When Does It Matter?, you know, when does this stuff really matter? Because I see people get really deep into it, but you don't always need to be that deep into it. And it works just if you keep it simple. So if you're two tenths off on your program, not a big deal. Right. I mean, Inside a grand, man, it right. all works. It all works. Okay. If you're if, even 1,200 now, with you're shooting a 6.5 Creed, the, 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 what we talked about at 1,000 yards should extend to 1,200, 1,250 at least. And after that, now you're on the backside of that. If you're a 308, and you and, and you got uh, still supersonic speed at a thousand, it's then it all that should be good. If you're you know nine hundred and twenty feet per second at twelve hundred, you can't predict that. You, you know that's now you're out of whack. But if you're thirteen hundred feet per second at a thousand, you should be consistent. Your software should still work. But once you go under that thirteen hundred feet per second, now you start seeing variables creep in. So okay. I think that's where that comes from. And, and how about another when does it matter kind of a question. Is there ever a time that you forego a wind call or just say there's not enough wind or the plate's so big or, or are you always making a wind call and trying to hit center of plate? You yeah, know, I, I usually do. Um, even if it's a tenth or two tenths on a, on a six tenths wide plate, you're still yeah, the time. Yeah, I, I like the, I like the, you know, the idea of hitting middle. Um, you know, I, I, and I've always got eyes on me. So for okay. me, if, if I'm there fucking around and, and it don't matter to me and I don't care, yeah, I can hold edge of plate and hit, you know, two tenths inside the edge of plate because the wind blew me two tenths. But I'd be better off making that wind call when one guy looks at me and sees me hit center. You know, okay, Frank knows his shit. But if I'm just catching the edge of a plate, well, well I make a better call than that. Well, you know, why is he, who's that? Because, you know, I get it better than that. So I have to tend to take it a little more serious. How about how about in the competition arena where you're shooting PRS or NRL? Yeah, you know what? Is, I is used there to, a time? I or? used to, um, when I was younger and a little bit better in shape, and, and, I, and it mattered to me. Was that when you were taller? Yep, I was much taller then, too. And my voice worked. Um, but uh, uh, now I, I can give two shits what anyone thinks of me in a comp. And, mm -hmm. and you know, I want to go there to entertain myself or get my head out of my space. Maybe I just want to go there, to be honest with you, to see what other guys are doing that I might not be on top of today. And so I don't really care what I'm doing. Um, you know, I, I know I can go slow and get, you know, maybe four out of eight hits or something consistently in the middle of the packet. Um, you know, but like when I shoot the local matches, I go home at three o'clock. Mm -hmm. You know, I may have two more stages. I may have one more stage. I go home at three o'clock. I don't care. Um, you know, but I just want to see what's the latest and greatest guy doing out there. Hey, that, that guy, oh, oh, that's kind of neat. I never saw a guy address an obstacle like that. Then that's something for me to take away. It's learning at that point. Okay. Another, another question in the, you know, when does it matter? When do you really need to think about this arenas is often, uh, DA density altitude, temperature change, those types of things. Um, so how much density change and how far is the target to make you think about it? I mean, if you're shooting everything inside 500 yards, um, are you even thinking about density altitude? Yeah, beyond six and eight. Um, inside 600, it's probably inside the plate, the changes. 
after six, after eight, weather starts working on it. So now you got to pay attention. And, and that's, I asked that because that's kind of what I found out. I sat down, did my big, big density altitude chart, did all the density altitudes out to a thousand <laughs> yards, wrote it all out, and then started subtracting numbers to figure out how much is my dope changing from 2000 density altitude to 8000 density altitude and inside 500 yards it, barely yeah. how badly do you want a cold bore hit because if you want a cold bore hit center steel you got to worry about density altitude but yeah. it, it's small like he's saying inside because right. you it, uh, weather needs time to work on the bullet and so now what our zippy fast calibers that actually pushes it out with a 308 you might see it three four hundred yards with a 6.5, you might not see it till 5.6. Something flatter or faster, you might not see it till 6.7. You know, so that's where that math kind of comes into play. Um, and that's why they do those fast, flat calibers. If you're only dialing 6 mils to 1,000 yards, things don't matter as much 5 and in. You know, but if you're dialing 10 mils to 1,000 yards things start to matter at four, you know, and, and, okay. and so it's a percentage of our drop that okay. it starts to come into play. But like Mark says, if, if you're on something that's alive, if you want to get that first round hit, you really should be looking at that stuff because you want to be ethical, right. you know, and you want to, and you want to take it out and, and maybe three inches on something living makes it sit there for an extra five minutes and suffer, you know, versus taking it out and, and it just DRTs right there. But on a piece of steel, who gives a shit? As long as I touch it, I got a point. You know, okay. and if it's four I'm away tall, right? I got a lot of room to play with. Okay. And in, in, in the same area there, you know, I've written out all the density altitude charts and have a paper chart. If you're using a paper chart, you know, someone's going elk hunting, they're going from Iowa to Colorado and they're taking a paper chart with them. What kind of reality is in that with distance? Is there a place that we should be staying? Whoa, if you're going to shoot... Shoot an elk at 800 yards and you're changing 8,000 density altitude, maybe you better have more than a paper chart. No, I think a paper chart will paper work. Chart if you've got a DA chart and it's like a cold, um, a cold bore, this program, um, you can print those charts mm -hmm. and it's a really good, robust program. I would be completely secure because that's building a chart off my data. If I'm winging it, that's a different story. If I'm just <clears> basically fudging rule of thumbs, but if I have a paper chart based off of my personal data that's built into my cold bore program, I'm completely secure in using it. Okay. And and even if your density altitude's every 2,000 on your chart, you know, 2468, and at 1,000 yards you're changing 4 to 6 tenths in, in density altitude changes, you'd still take that paper chart? Yeah. Or would you get a more refined paper chart? You know, no, I'd probably still use it if it's just that small. I mean, okay. I, I'd probably get closer. And do an eight hundred instead of a thousand, okay. but um, it it would depend on what I was going after, like again, steel versus flesh, kind okay. of thing. And um, some some of the same question about you know you're going to the mountain shoot elk. When do you have to start thinking about your high angle shooting? Is there a rule of thumb there to know? Ten degrees. One, once you get there, and, okay. Ten degrees is where you start to think about it. And is there a distance comes with that you got to be worried a about? Bit. Um, you know, further out is going to matter more. Uh, we just had Dustin asked me a question they all shot some competition in minnesota and everybody missed this prairie dog against a, a lake and they were wondering why did we all miss this prairie dog and they were running software and i said well where did you hold and he goes well it gave me 1.3 for the degree angle but it was close I, I don't remember the exact range but it was inside 300 yards and i went what 1.3, he said, you guys are smoking crack. I would have just, like, if I'm looking at the prairie dog target, I would have held that, like, his fat feet. You know how that bottom's a little bulbous. I would have held that. They were holding 1.3. He said, go run your software and tell me what it said. And he goes, yeah, the software said 1.3. I said, nah, dude, that was fucking wrong. I'm like, you're probably an inch below center because you were that close, you know? And, and everybody missed it, but everybody was doing the same thing. And they thought it was the water, they thought it was this, they thought it was that. And it was just the software overdid the angle. And, and I'm like, man, 300 yards or whatever the number was. I'm like, well, that was way too much hold under. And, and I don't know why they did it, but I would have just nudged them down. You know, rule of thumb when we worked at rifles only was shoot them in the balls. You know, that was it. It's like, well, what are you going to do? Shoot the guy in the fucking balls, dude, and you'll be good. 
and 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 that would you know you're not aim off. at the balls. Yeah, and 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 and, and you're gonna hit them in the belly. Yeah, at the worst, and and so um, but yeah, that's I think sometimes things get jacked up and overestimate. Oh, that close, I would have nudged it maybe an inch low from center. Okay. So. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I think that's most of that section. One of the other, a few, one of the a few things I wanted to talk about. One was spotting trace. When you're spotting behind someone, how do you pick up where trace is at? Or tra- if trace is hard to find on a you day. Talk in a minute. I'll get there. I don't understand the question because how do you not see trace? I, well, I see it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I I don't I don't ever not see trace. I don't I don't really get it. But you don't ever you look above the target because generally the the it, the bullet's going to fall into the target. It's going to it's going to go higher than the target and fall into it. But if if you see trace twice, he shot low. If you see trace once, then he either shot high or hit. You know, so that's that's what I look for. But I don't I don't understand when you can't see trace. Yeah, I, I get it. Certain lighting conditions make it tougher. Um, I back, you bring the, uh, the focus in a little bit, so don't crispy focus the target. Target might be a little blurred, but you're coming. Counterclockwise. Yep. And then um, my target, like Mark said, is always in the lower portion of the scope. So I'm looking at it because it's, it's now flat calibers. It's not as bad. But 308, when it's arcing, it's going to go above, like Mark said, and then drop into it. And so... One, you got to line up right behind the guy because angles and things like that. And it's the best trace is when you're directly in line behind them. Um, we're just right of center usually from people. Uh, in good conditions, high humidity, the, things like that, I could be a little bit off center. Um, but then that changes our aspect to it. With trace, you know, I could see left, right, high or low is tricky. And then I can tell wind from a can't. So today, Adam was excuse me, was shooting, and I said to Marcus, hey, he's canted, because I saw his trace curve, and, and he had the, the lazy kind of curve in the trace, and sure enough, his, um, his spigot mount or something loosened up, and his head was pushing the scope just over on the movement, and so I re-notched his, um, his elite iron bipod, so when he pushed his head, it was straight, but I was able, I wasn't lined up behind him, I was two people way over from him, but I caught his trace went lazy. And uh, when that happened, I yelled over to Mark because he was right there. I said, is he canted? And he, at first you're like, no, well, well, yeah, 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 yeah. He has a little bit going on there. And then that's when he said, oh, my mount is loose. Um, so, uh, yeah, okay. man, trace trace is a bit of an art. But um, like Mark says, if you got a good piece of glass, you're lined up behind somebody. And don't try to get crispy focus on the steel, bring it in a little bit. Okay, so then that leads me to my next question. A lot of guys now are talking, shooting about, you know, 6BR, 6BRA and slowing them down and spotting your own trace while you're shooting. Have you guys done that or seen it? And and are there tricks to doing that? I mean, Dude, well, just, you have to concentrate and you have to be two eyes open. Yep, and you got to back your power down. Um, you, you got to open up your field of view. You got your recoil management, and with a six millimeter, it's not moving. Um, you know, so your recoil management has to be money. But yeah, I could see it sometimes. Um, I don't always look for it as much. It depends on uh, the target's backstop and, and whether or not there's something behind it. If there isn't, then I kind of want to see trace a little bit. Um, but you know, I want to resolve parallax more than trying to find trace. Right, and that's where my question was, if you're gonna dial your, your focus back a little bit, but then you're inducing parallax, parallax into your scope while you're shooting, or... And then that's, that's why I wanna be on 12 power. So then the parallax arrow is gonna be smaller, but if guys are trying to do it on 20 or 25, it's not gonna work. Okay. You know? Okay, um, I think that's all the questions I pretty much had. I got a speed round, if you wanna go through that. Sure. Um, so these are just, Quick answers, and if you both want to give an answer, it could could be interesting. Um, what's your best Frank quote? Well, hunting, hunting, idea. Oh, <laughs> I got an idea. I don't know. Mine um, would have been whack 'em wholesale. Yeah, whack 'em wholesale is a good one. Um, and what I say something all the time too is this something there, just that. But uh, uh, there's a word I repeat a lot. But I can't think of it what it is right now. But idea, I say people like yeah. how I I mangle the English language. 
Mark has a list, but Whack-A-Mole sale is good. Okay, how about uh, first gun you ever own? Is, do you still have it? Yes. What was it? It's a uh, Remington 700 bolt action 270 uh, from about 1976 or 78, and I've had uh, Chad Dixon rebarrel it. That's what I was telling you today. You know, you like your old 270? Get it out of that slow twist and get it into a faster twist, and you'll like it better. It, it, it's actually a long-range cartridge if, if you use it right. Uh, my first precision rifle I bought out of the Marine Corps uh, was a, a Steyr SSG-69 with a Shirovsky 6X on it. I still have it. Okay. That was the first gun you ever owned? Um, no, I had guns before, um, 22s and stuff. I, I still think I have those. Um, my brother has some of my stuff from my dad's house. Okay. But um, like the first one that I was sort of serious with that wasn't a 22 would have been the SSG-69. Okay. My 700 is still in a Macmillan quiet stock. Look that up. You can't even Google it anymore. They sold a cloth-covered stock for a couple of years. It was really neat. Wow. Okay. I lived in Connecticut, man. We shot 22s and air rifles. Yeah. You know, and I, I still do have my first RWS, which was like over 1,000 feet per second 20, uh, air rifle. I still have that um, somewhere upstairs. Okay. How about your favorite rifle platform ever built? Not just the AIs that I know you're going to say. Yeah. But... Anything else that's ever been built? I'd be built, like Kadex, you know? too. Or the Grand? Um, no, I'll probably go 14. Nah, it's a battle club. It's a battle club. It rifle. is, too. But I'm, well, no, honestly, I like a freaking AR better than a 14 or a Grand. Okay. So I would say my my M16A2 would be the better platform, would be my favorite. So okay. um, that's not an AI. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, have you ever seen a musical? Yes. Yeah. I, I used to have to go. Mamma Mia! I used to have to go to opera all the time. Oh, did you really? Yeah, because my my girl family had season tickets to opera, so I used to have to go all the time. I've seen most of them, okay. um, and I've seen my first concert with Shana Na. Ooh! So I saw those those okay. guys. Um, uh, best firearm ever invented. Nineteen eleven. That's been a mainstay. Accuracy International. Yeah, bolt action, I would say. Because it was actually invented. I mean, meaning it's so different from the two lug Remington 700 that it is different. Yeah. It's different in every way. Yeah. I would say, I would say Dave Walls is is definitely one of the guys I would look at and and put him alongside of John Browning. But um, I, I still think if you look at how even be prior to 1911, a 1911 goes back and changed everything in a revolver world. I would say a 1911 is probably, it has to be high up on the list. Okay. What, uh, what's the biggest waste of money for a new shooter? Precision rifle shooter. Ooh, there's a lot of that. You um, want brands? No. no, brands. no, no, no. <laughs> um, God, who knows? Um, you know, a lot of guys in the pistol world say the holster. You know, <sighs> get, making sure you got a great holster. But in, in, the, in the precision world, what is it? Probably some weird caliber, like thirty three seventy eight. Those really kind of crazy big ass calibers that are meant to hunt something, because dumbasses can't shoot for shit, and they think they can just mortar through it. So I would probably say something really big. I mean, not shooting an elephant, where a guy takes this like overboard crazy ass shit to shoot a deer. You know, I'd say the the crappy rings, excellent scope, excellent shooting platform, crappy rings. The piece that binds it all together. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what's the best movie you've ever seen? Man, Legends of the Fall just tore me up. It was my favorite movie for a long time. I'm, I'm like a Godfather, Goodfellas, that kind of thing. I like all the Marvel ones now, but if I went back in time, um, probably a, a Godfather well, one or two and then Goodfellas. Okay. What's the longest you've ever gone without sleeping and why? Sears cool. Yeah. Um, in the Marine Corps, probably three, four days. Uh, Team Spirit, I think I went four days. That's, so. that's a stunt. Okay. First album you ever bought? I think it was Al Green. My, my, I know my first 45 was Elton John, Crocodile Rock. Um, probably first album. I had a cousin that was a Beatles freak and has a lot of stuff, so it probably was a Beatles album. Probably either the Red or Blue. Um, one of those would be my first. Can't stand the Beatles. <laughs> yeah. Just can't stand them. 
And uh, what music do you like to listen to? I guess your album kind of gives us an idea. Uh, smooth jazz. I'm a metal guy. I'm like an Iron Maiden, Judas Priest. Those were like my first metal concerts. So I, I like metal, but we we do a lot of classic rock. Like we like Scorpions. We listen to that a bunch. I'm a Hendrix guy. Um, like anything '68 metalish, like Sabbath, um, Hendrix, Vep, Zeppelins, and then you get into the British wave with the Iron Maidens and Priest. You know they all had they all had long hair in the eighties, right? Yeah, I did too. You don't have any. Oh, I, you did. I did. I had hair down. My brother sang and stuff and played Toad's Place in New Haven and and all that kind of stuff. Um, my brother was in bands, but um, yeah. So I would do basically seventies classic rock to heavy metal. Okay, what's the best trip you've ever been on? Probably this one. This is pretty fun. Man. Yeah, we've been having a good time on this trip. Um, I think Europe. When I went to Collis, um, and we did the Vienna Loop. Uh, we really enjoyed that. We went to all the museums. I went to the Jaeger Ball, um, that kind of stuff. Um, that was a really good trip. Got to see Kalas Shirovsky. Was a guest of them in the in the um, palace for you know a ball of ten thousand people, and then just seeing those museums and all the history, um, that was cool. I, if you watch the Tom, one of the Tom Cruise Mission Impossible at the Opera House, I've been there. My hotel, you could see, was directly across the street from that opera house so I stayed right there and then that whole inner loop of Vienna was probably pretty kick-ass but if I was going to be crazy and selfish I would say like the Philippines Korea and all the hookers and shit that was like a porn carnival so that was a good trip we heard some of those stories this weekend yeah yeah. Yeah. Um, what's the best pet you ever had um the dog you have now yeah my dogs too fuzz is great um, the one before him, Riley, was awesome. It's just, you're always attached. I mean, you get 10, 12 years plus with the animals, so th- those are really good. I, I had a great um, Rhodesian Ridgeback, Kimba, and she was pretty awesome for a while. That was uh, back in the 90s, and she was a good dog, and mainly because she never said anything. She didn't bark. Um, you know, Fuzz talks a lot. Yeah, he's always around. Yeah, yeah, but Fuzz is my buddy, man. He's attached to the hip. Cool. And Mark's the same way with his dogs. You got more than one dog. Yeah, we've got a uh, poodle and a Bichon. Okay. We're attached to our animals. Yeah. Yeah, you, 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 if you did something bad to the dogs, you'd probably catch a round. <laughs> what, uh, what's your greatest accomplishment? What are you most proud of that you've done? I just, I think getting out of the corporate world and being self-sufficient and, and developing myself as a businessman, I think. You have to be the hide. Sniper's Heights touched too many people to not look at it. And you've been running that almost 20 years now. Yeah, almost 20. And, and I mean, just the, the amount of stuff that grew out of the hide, the companies that came from it, the products that came from it, the people that are associated to it, um, you know, that it's, it's beyond anything I've done. Um, so the hide would have to be pretty much defines me. Okay. And last question here. Uh, you went Bigfoot hunting and you just, you bagged him. It's the real deal. Didn't need the shovel. And got to bury someone. What's your choice of taxidermy? Just a head mount, full body mount? Yeah, I go full body. You know, sitting on a log, eating a fish, like they was bear, any, anything specific? It'd have to be like a creature from the Black Lagoon pose. You know, kind of like arms out, coming after you, because you'd want to see this whole thing. So I would do a full creature from the Black Lagoon. Okay, that's assuming you got to keep it, right? Yeah, yeah, the government didn't snatch it out from under me. Yeah, okay. You know. Well, that's what I got. I appreciate your time. I, I'm enjoying the class. We're having a lot of fun. So, love Day two tomorrow. But, hey, Ted, while I got you here, thanks a lot for what you did for the charts, man, because your charts are really helping people. And we're going to incorporate your wind chart into the, into the presentation, if you don't mind. I mean, you know, you just volunteered, stepped up, and did all these things. And um, we really appreciate it, man. It took weaponized math to a different place. It explains itself well, and and our float, uh, but the flow chart is really cool. And once we get that, once we get our little pamphlet out where we're gonna hand out, uh, it's gonna it's gonna take guys to the next level, I think. Yeah, yeah. the hide really created a place that everyone shared and and was helping each other. And I guess I kind of joined that and decided to share it with everyone too. So yeah, now you got a skill set, and, and and like I said, you you really you made a difference. And it's one thing for us to talk about it and talk about the X factor. It's another thing the way you visualized it. And as well with the wind, what you're doing and all that stuff, um, you're taking our words and you're making it into something that's easily easily digestible. 
And um, that's pretty awesome, and we appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Any more of it comes up, I'm happy to help. No, we the, the wind chart, I think the only part I have to talk about that one is people keep asking for one in, in their gun mile per hour. Right. And the wind chart has nothing to do with your gun mile per hour. It all has to do with the actual wind, right, the speed cosine. of the wind. Right. You know? Um, and and I, I have yet to find a place that it makes it easier if you have one in your gun mile per hour. Well, I guess if you so. did, like, most are averaging about a 6-mile-an-hour gun. If you did 6, 12, 18, 24, and maybe did it that way and gave them percentages of that, they'd be closer to right than wrong. Okay. And maybe that's the way to do it is go 6, 12, 18, to 24. And we can certainly do that. That's really yeah. easy to do. And instead of it being like 5, 10, 15, 20, but really a 5, 10, 15, 20 should work. Right. But I just I just did a new one last week for the guys I keep asking in in, uh, in the European system, metrics. Metric, yeah. You know, meters per second. So we just put one out that was 2, 4, 6, 8, 10. Mm-hmm. Um, but everyone should know that works for miles per hour, too. Those charts work for whatever right, right. speed, it's velocity, so light years, just... whatever it works. Mm-hmm. So. No, yeah. you do good. You do good stuff, and we appreciate it because um, it helps us explain this to people better. I got a I got a date in in about forty five minutes with a fat Mexican chick, so we got we got to. Hoping she has pie day. tonight. Yeah, hoping she's got some pie for me. Yeah, we're good, man. I'm out. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Ted. Appreciate the questions. Appreciate the opportunity. We'll get this thing up, and and you guys enjoy. Comment, say thanks, do whatever. See you on the hide. Cheers. We are out.